It's been called the fog of war. The phrase encompasses all of the confusions and miscalculations that can obviously occur during an, during an actual combat situation. Friendly fire, for example, is often the result of unavoidable confusion once the battle has begun. Since we are involved in actual spiritual combat situations, we can and we do experience the fog of spiritual warfare. Now, what forms might that fog take? Well, I think a passage here at the end of Romans chapter 8 does a pretty good job identifying the kind of fog that we run into in spiritual warfare. In it, we learn that God's love for us is the light that guides us in the densest of fogs. And so, we're going to look at this tonight. Probably the next time we're together, Lord willing, we're going to talk about being battle-scarred as Christians in the spiritual warfare, and then we're going to start to move and shift our focus into uh, our enemy and what he's like, what he's able to do, what he's not able to do, those kinds of things. So, but tonight, the fog of spiritual war, and it's uh, Romans 8.35. Let's start there with the opening question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the love of Christ is the love He has for you. That's what's meant in this. It's not just that it is His nature to love, and so He has to love you. Have you ever felt that way? There are people who feel that way. They think, well, the Lord, God is love, and so He has to love me. There's, he has no choice but to love me. Um, but His love was actually proven for you on the cross uh, when you were yet a sinner. He loved you in that state. Uh, and certainly as a believer, you're much better off than you were then. He, he does love you. And His love is illustrated, uh, as we like to point out uh, as we go through the Word of God, in many romantic metaphors. Thus, it's not just a duty that Jesus took upon Himself. It is His delight. Uh, I really like the romantic metaphors because they, they make that point. Uh, and a lot of times... Some whole theologies, I remember Dave Hunt used to talk about reform theology, for example, in his criticisms. He would say, what kind of love is that? It, it, it doesn't sound like any kind of love that we know anything about. <clears throat> and, and so, God has proven His love on the cross, and He's exampled it by giving us romantic metaphors so that we can understand that it's an intimate love, that it's a, it's a, a, a pure love, not just an attribute of God, but a delight of God. Uh, in order to love us. And the question that opens verse 35 assumes, obviously, that there are things which can cloud our appreciation of the Savior's love. And then Paul launches right into a list of some of those things. Uh, and these are not a few of our favorite things, as we might uh, sing. But verse 35 says, "...shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword?" Tribulation, that's a word that properly refers to pressure from without or affliction rising from an external cause. Uh, it can also mean, however, not infrequently, just a trial of any kind. Uh, and so it's, it's a general word for the trials you go through, no matter the source, but especially that which comes from without. Distress means narrowness of place. These are situations where you can't see a way out, uh, and, and this is a, a frequent uh, situation among Christians where you just, you just can't see your way out. Something has happened, something has occurred, and you don't see how you're ever going to get out of it. Persecution 
is the specific trial or trials that will come simply because you are a believer and you take a stand for Jesus. Now, it is true that uh, for the most part here in the United States, we are not persecuted the way uh, the church is around the world and has been uh, typically. And so, the thing about it is you really can't, um, you can't compare sufferings, though. I mean, I, I'd be the first to say I'd rather be in the United States with the kind of first world suffering that we have than, uh, for example, when we visited communist China back in the 80s and met with the underground believers there. I mean, obviously, if, you, you know, if you're comparing. Uh, but suffering is still suffering here in the United States, even if it is being persecuted at a workplace or those kinds of things. And many of you have and maybe you are right now going through a time of persecution. And, and um, if it makes you feel better to think that there are Christians who uh, suffer worse, that's great, but it doesn't nullify the fact that you're going through a problem. Famine, we haven't really experienced shortages too much because we've lost everything for the sake of the gospel, and that's what this is talking about. It's not just, you know, water rationing and all that. I know that we're having water problems here in the valley, and, and I don't want to talk about whose fault it is. I see the signs. I know whose fault it is. But anyway, uh, I remember living in Southern California, uh, and uh, they had real water rationing in the sense that they just said, you have no watering days, you don't water your lawn or any of your plants, uh, and everything just died uh, because there was… They, uh, now, they might have had tons of water. You know, I don't know the real political situation, but, uh, you know, there was a situation where you just… you couldn't water at all. And so, uh, you know, we've experienced some things like that, but not shortages because we've lost everything for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he talks about uh, nakedness. This is in that same vein of just being all of your goods being taken. In the, book of the Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about taking joyfully the spoiling of your goods. My understanding of what was happening to the Hebrew Christians was that the, the, uh, the Jews were not allowing them to belong to the trade guilds anymore, and so they couldn't make a living. And then they were turning them over to the Romans who would come in and confiscate all of their goods. And so it was effectively making them homeless and with only the clothes on their back. Uh, and then he talks about peril. It's a general word referring to dangers of any kind. If there is intended to be a progression in these words, you can see that once you've lost everything, you're literally homeless and obviously in great peril. And then sword, uh, as if the proceeding weren't bad enough, you could be martyred. And so this is Paul's list of things. Right after he says, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, he says, well, let's talk about some things. And for our purposes, the illustration of fog that we're using, each of these is a kind of fog obscuring our vision of God's love. And several of these happening together, which they sometimes do, form a dense fog around our walk with the Lord. Uh, and and you, you, you can't see your way through it. Um, we think it's strange when these things occur. At least that's what the Bible writers say. Don't think it's strange when you fall into various trials. Uh, but we do. We lose our bearings as if we just entered a dust cloud on a clear day. We we're coming back over from the coast uh, a, about a week ago, I guess, and there's that section there on Highway… is that 41, right? 41. Highway 41. I always get it backwards, uh, where it says, dust, next eight miles, you know, and up ahead, it looked like Armageddon. 
you know, these huge dust clouds were moving across the highway, and I thought, this is it. You know, I'd forgotten what the highway patrol says to do in a dust storm. You know, do you stop? Do you pull off the road? Do you just give up? You know, I mean, so, but luckily it wasn't so thick that we couldn't see through it. And what I was looking for was the headlights of other vehicles and I wanted to say, hey, can I even see anybody in this dust cloud? And praise the Lord, we could. Uh, other things that happen when we're in a dense fog, you lose your way completely. And as Christians, you can even become a deserter from the battlefield. I know lots of Christians, and so do you, hopefully not lots of Christians, but some who trials just overwhelmed them. And for, you know, maybe they haven't lost their faith in one sense, but they're really not walking with the Lord anymore because they just um, couldn't answer for themselves this question of why has God allowed this? Where is God when it hurts? It just seems so dense to them. Uh, they couldn't see the light, and they're not walking with the Lord. And so this is a very serious situation. And the point of, is that all these could occur, and yet they cannot in any way alter the Lord's love for you. You may not feel that love, but it is just as precious as ever. He is just as present as ever. In fact, even more so because He is a God who is uh, acquainted with, our, with suffering and with grief and wants to come alongside of us in ours. Uh, we actually, the problem is we don't want Him alongside. We want Him ahead solving all of the problem. Uh, and sometimes He just wants to, it seems, commiserate with us and, and be with us in that and teach us some things. So verse 36 says, as it is written... For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, that's written in Psalm 44, verse 22. I think what Paul is doing is looking at God's saints in the past and remembering how they were mistreated. Do we conclude that God did not love them? I mean, when you read the Old Testament, you read the Psalms or some of the stories of the saints, do you conclude at the end of the story of Jeremiah, for example, God did not love Jeremiah. Of course not. Do you conclude some failure or fault in them was the reason the Lord turned away from loving them, that He separated His love from them? Of course not. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we see Job or Joseph or Jeremiah or Abraham or David in some tribulation or distress, some peril, some nakedness, some persecution or famine, we understand it was precisely on account of God's love that they were mistreated. When we see an Old Testament prophet killed by the sword, we rejoice that he was so loved by God. It's just when we're in that situation, we, can't, we lose that perspective. Um, but we, we never think about other saints the way we think of ourselves. We always give God the benefit of the doubt when it comes to what he did with Father Abraham, but when he does similar things in our own life, where is God? Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. On this phrase, Dr. J. Vernon McGee writes, and I quote, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, it means to have assistance from another who gets the victory for us, who never lets us be defeated. Jesus loves you so much that he fights your battles for you, McGee says. He conquers your enemies for you. He does it, however, with spiritual weapons like humility and patience and forgiveness. In other words, it may seem like you're being conquered, but only because you won't accept His spiritual help. 
Another author put it this way, we must define life in terms of giving rather than taking, self-sacrifice rather than self-protection, dying rather than killing. We win by losing, we triumph through defeat, and we become rich by giving ourselves away. And uh, I've, obviously you found this too. It's precisely in these, in these kinds of fogs that you are brought to places where you have to give rather than take and sacrifice rather than protect and all of that. Otherwise, you would never do any of those things. It says it's through Him who loved us. It's in the past tense, loved. Jesus loves us still, and we know He does because He loved us at Calvary and died for us. There He proved His love, and it cannot lessen over time. Do you realize that because God is love now, His love cannot lessen for you? He is love, so He can't lose love or leave being loving. We don't realize this because so often our love for someone or their love for us does at least seem to lessen, does it not? People seem to fall into and out of love pretty easily. I mean, I don't watch them, but I'm familiar with the shows. And I, Well, anyway, Bachelor, The Bachelorette, shows like that, where people fall in love in five or six minutes. And they're going to, this is the person I'm going to marry and spend the rest of my life. And then 20 minutes later, they're out of love with that person and they're on Dancing with the Stars, you know, or something, because that's the way the world works. Um, so we, we, we kind of, even if we have, a, you know, a long-term marriage, you know, like, you know, we've been married 30, 40, 50 years, we still understand that most people fall in and out of love the way they change, you know, uh, their, what they're going to eat every day. And, and so we can't help but project this sometimes onto God and think He must love me less because of something I did. I think we live... Are you familiar with Franz Kafka? How many know who Franz Kafka was? He was a crazy existentialist who thought life was absurd and he wrote novels that didn't end. They just went nowhere. And, um, and, and you know, in, in, in this Kafka-esque sense... Uh, his, his novel, The Trial, would fit into this. I won't explain it to you now, but it's stupid anyway. But anyway, um, the idea is that you, f- you feel like God doesn't love you because of something you've done or didn't do, but you don't know what it is, and He's not telling you, and so you live in this kind of trepidation that God doesn't love me anymore or His love has lessened for me because of I don't know. Can you help me figure it out? As if he would withhold that. And I think a lot of Christians feel that in these fog situations, this trial, this peril, this famine, this nakedness, when it's so hard and you think, well, the Lord doesn't love me. God cannot fall out of love for you. You can leave your first love for him, but he never will, not ever, no, never leave you or forsake you. I always try and draw that out because in, I've, I've been told by scholars you know where Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you? The verbs there are really expansive in the Greek language where he's actually saying, I will never, not ever, no, never leave you or forsake you. It's so strong. He wants to be as strong as possible. Through him, as a reminder, we can do nothing without him, but all things through him. The very trials themselves draw forth his presence, his sustaining grace. Paul's point was and is that these things which on the surface seem separators are really connectors. 
they connect us to the deepest understanding and experience of the love of Christ. I'm reading a recent book on the topic of suffering. In it, the author says, our hope is not Jesus plus an explanation as to why suffering happens or Jesus plus an explanation as to why you have this job or that spouse or these circumstances or that pain. God is especially present in suffering. This is the foundation of what is known as the theology of the cross, which sees God as present in victory rather than in defeat. We do not produce tough Christians anymore. The slightest trial throws them. We need a theology of the cross. We need to be often talking about the patient endurance of suffering. Sometimes we just really need to pray for people. Let me pray for you that you will have patient endurance in this suffering. We can pray that the Lord would remove it if it's His will, but in the meantime, since it isn't at this point, since He hasn't, you need patient endurance to see Him in it. Verse 38, he says, I'm persuaded. One version translates it, I am certain. Not the slightest doubt in Paul's mind regarding the strength and sufficiency of Jesus Christ's love. As the chapter closes, he is still searching for something that might separate us from the love Jesus has for us. Uh, And so he says, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. Death is the most terrible and terrifying of enemies, is it not? He strikes all ages at any time. Making death notifications as a law enforcement chaplain for the last 17 years has given me a new appreciation for death's non-discrimination. It doesn't matter the time of day. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter the age or the health. Nothing matters to death. If you personify death, nothing matters. You can never figure out when somebody is going to die. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. But death cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so death has no sting. It is even to be preferred because it ushers us into glory. Life seems an odd choice when you're talking about things that cloud the love of God. He might mean those times when life is so hard, it's so difficult, you actually despair of living. Times when you hate life. Or living. Now, we don't admit this to one another because we don't know what our brothers and sisters in Christ might say if you said, if you were to say to me, how are you doing? And I were to say, I hate my life right now. I despair of living. You'd probably call Sergeant Mundy and see if they could lock me up for 72 hours or you'd find out if I had weapons in the house or things like that. But I know there are times in many of our lives, I won't throw it on everybody, you might not want to admit it, there are times when you despair of life. And you know what? You're in good company because the, the, the psalmist oftentimes despaired of life. Job despaired of life. I'll tell you, if I was Job, I would have despaired of life. Ever had a boil? Man, are they painful. And you have boils all over your body and you think, The only way I can deal with the pain is to make it even more painful by scraping them with an old piece of pottery I found here in the garbage heap. Hey, guys. You ever pop a boil? I mean, you got to get into some of this imagery sometimes, you know. Job is not just sitting there in a hospital situation. This isn't a hospital visit. Job is oozing with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and he's crushing them with potsherds. Hey, guys. How you doing? It's gross. And you know what? That's desperate. 
And then there's another aspect to life, though, having it all. But what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And so life can be a fog sometimes. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. These obviously refer to angelic beings that are arranged in hierarchies. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about them in weeks to come. Nor things present, nor things to come. Things present would include all the calamities and catastrophes we are subject to. Many terrible things happen. Just watch the news, or maybe you don't want to watch the news. We actually quit watching the news a while back. We cut the cable. We do like Roku and Apple TV so we don't get regular news. And it was my wife's the first one to notice that we're, we're not quite as anxious as we used to be from watching the news. You're just like always. You always think a Malaysian airliner is going to be shot down over your house when you're watching the news, you know, or that the Russians who moved in next door are really, you know, a, a sleeper cell or something like that. It's just crazy. And so uh, things that are present, things to come, our worries about tomorrow. There's some people who've said to me, I've, I've thought about not doing the prophecy updates anymore because some people say, you are freaking me out. I get so nervous about the prophecy updates when I think about maybe the Antichrist is my neighbor. I mean, you know, I was watching a TV thing the other day. Said, he could be alive today. Could be your neighbor. And that's true. I'm pretty sure he's not my neighbor to the north. I got a new guy to the south, I just, who knows? <laughs> nor height nor depth. Height has been variously understood. It seems likely Paul was referring to prosperity, honor, and elevation in this life. Jesus loves you no less if you have this world's good, goods, but if they have you, you may not be experiencing his love. Uh, he loves you still in that fog. You know, sometimes you can be in a fog and not know it. Uh, you know, when we talk about these earlier things, yeah, I say, hey, this, yeah, peril, famine, you know. Some people, some Christians, in fact, I think a lot of Christians walk around in a fog as if there isn't a warfare going on. They're just comfortable and happy. You know, C.S. Lewis in, uh, in the Screwtape Letters talked about how if, if people can just not believe that he exists, he doesn't have to do much else, you know, because they're on their way to hell. I think today he would update to say that if Christians just don't... Um, know that there's a war and think that everything is normal, they're not making a dent in the kingdom. Depth would be the lowest circumstances of depression or poverty or contempt and want, the various lowest rank of life. I think of the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 who were in dire circumstances. God loved them just as greatly. And we, in fact, we look at them, like I said earlier, and we say, now there's somebody that the Lord loved. Isaiah cut in half, you know, all these other people that are living in caves and in dens of the earth. I mean, now that's, that's God's love. God, don't ever do that to me. But, you know, if you do that to me, I'm pretty sure you don't love me. And I did something wrong, even though I don't know what it is. And I'm going to start reading Franz Kafka novels. Uh, but, uh, you know, but if, if you did that to David, now that I understand. And then he says, other created thing. That encompasses everything. And then in verse 39, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, you know, I think you've caught this idea. We, especially here, we know fog. We invented fog, right? The other people don't have a name for their fog, do they? But we have, we have a name for our fog. And people talk about fog, and they say, yeah, it was foggy. It was kind of like Thule fog. 
right? Remember the Thule fog? It hasn't been that foggy the last few years, but we, we know fog. When people talk fog, we're the experts. Now, when you're in the fog, you want to see a light, and you want to focus on it. You want to head for it. I don't want to, I don't want to have geographical battle with you, but when I lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, Running Springs, Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, we had Thule fog up there as well. I don't know what we called it. We just called it fog because we're not very creative in Southern California. But we had mind-boggling, blinding fog on these incredibly narrow mountain roads with crazy Southern California drivers and no guardrails. I mean, it was an adventure to get home. Uh, And, I mean, it, uh, it would be in dead winter, fog like you can't believe, and you have to have your windows rolled down so that you could hear if your tires started to go off the road onto dirt. And then you could make a slight correction, hopefully not too big of a correction. But here's what would happen. If you could see taillights in front of you, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you would follow that vehicle like a lemming over a cliff. <laughs> and I remember one night, you know, I was, I was kind of moving, and there was nobody in front of me, and there was people behind me, and I came to one of those long turnouts they have, you know. I pulled over. Everyone pulled over behind me. <laughs> I was in my little Honda Prelude, and, and I knew the road really. I knew all the curves. I knew right where I was. And I thought, man, I am just tired of leading because your eyes, you know, you, you're, just, you're in the fog. And I sat there. It seemed like an eternity. And I thought, they're going to wait me out. <laughs> and they did. And so, I, and so I left and everybody behind me. I had a convoy following me until I got home, you know. And so, but the important thing is, no matter how dense the fog is, at some point, Even if it's right in front of you, maybe it could be 100 feet, 50 feet, you can see light if there's light on. Jesus is that light and our guide in the fog of spiritual war. The fog may remain. I mean, you know, when you saw the light, it didn't dissipate the fog, but you forgot about the fog because now you knew where you were going. You had a, a goal, for lack of a better word. You had a focus, and you knew, okay, there's a car in front of me on the road and I can follow that car and get to where I'm going. I I have a sense of safety. And the fog, it may remain, it may even press in on you all the more, but there's always the light of Jesus' love for you. And if you'll fix upon that, upon Him, you can journey homeward with His presence. Amen? Amen. All right, praise the Lord.